Pentecost is really about two things, isn't it? It's about wind and it's about words. But quite honestly, at least in terms of how much the Pentecost scripture story talks about wind and how much it talks about words, mostly it's about words. Which is a little strange to say because we think of Pentecost as the windiest day in the Bible. And when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about the breath of God. We think about the wind of God. But take note, in the scripture passage that was read for us this morning, the Pentecost coming of the Holy Spirit story of Acts chapter 2, the wind only shows up in one verse, verse 2. And then there's the bit about tongues of fire resting on each disciple's head in verse 3. And the rest of it is about words. Not the wind, but words. Words spoken in different languages, but understood by all who were listening. Words that cause some of the bystanders to sneer at the disciples and dismiss them as drunks. Words that Peter offers to interpret the scriptures and then testify about Christ. I hate to break it to you, but if you focus on the content of the story and the emphasis of the story, it really is more about words than wind. Now, I don't mean in any way to dismiss the importance of the image of wind when we're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit coming as wind, blowing where it will, moving us from what was to what will be, sweeping away the dust and debris of the old in favor of the new. That spirit wind is a powerful image. It is a potent metaphor for the way God works in the world, the way God moves in the world. But if we look at the actual story, the fact of the matter is that the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is an event that gains traction with the people who are there in Jerusalem, not just because the wind is so violent or the tongues of fire are so surprising, but because everyone who is present there on the day of Pentecost hears the message in a language they can understand. They hear it in a familiar language, their own native language. And these words of testimony of the good news of Christ, heard, understood, these words grab them, draw them in. Listen again for a moment to the scripture starting at verse 6. And at this sound, that is both the sound of the wind and the sound of all the words, the crowd gathered was bewildered because each one heard them, them being the disciples, speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they, the people gathered there, asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? It appears to us that in this story, the people who are gathered, these devout Jews who have come from all over the known world, who have come to Jerusalem, are they living there? Have they come for the festival? Perhaps both? The festival of weeks, one of the Jewish pilgrimage festivals, which would suggest that there were people who had come 
not just who were there. They likely did hear the wind. They probably gra- it probably grabbed their attention. But what really held their attention was the sound of so many voices speaking in different languages. It seems to have been a cacophony of, la- of language, but then each person hears something they didn't expect to hear, the language of home. So we're going to play a little bit with the scripture this morning. A familiar traditional interpretation of this text is that the disciples were suddenly, by the power of the Holy Spirit, able to speak in languages they hadn't known before. What is coming out of their mouths as they speak the deeds of power, as the scripture puts it, is the language of each of the listeners. That would be amazing. Or maybe... The disciples are speaking in their own language, likely Aramaic, but the people who are listening are hearing in their own native language, almost like an instantaneous yet mysterious Google translation that is happening somewhere between the mouth of the speaker and the ears of the listener. And if that's happening, then that's amazing. No wonder they are astonished. But what if... The list of locations noted in the story isn't the same as the list of languages. After all, doesn't it seem strange that Jews who are either living in Jerusalem or coming to Jerusalem for the festival, who were gathered from all over the known world, would actually have no common language, would only have spoken a a local dialect of some sort, I mean, think about, these are devout Jews, and they're willing to come to Jerusalem, or they live in Jerusalem, and they're expecting to participate in worship together, and yet they don't know the language. They only know the language of their hometown back there. That would be kind of strange, wouldn't it? These people who travel to Jerusalem, who live in Jerusalem, aren't backwater or backwoods people, are they? In fact, some scholars, at least a few, have said that the Jews who left Israel to settle in the east toward Mesopotamia prior to and around this time, the eastern diaspora, likely spoke Aramaic as their language, their first language. That was the same language that those who still lived in Israel, including the disciples, would have spoken. While those who had gone west from Israel prior to and around this time, the Western diaspora spoke Greek, the language of the Mediterranean basin. And if that's true, then there wouldn't have been a need for a variety of languages to communicate with the crowds that day, just two languages needed for everyone gathered to understand what was going on, Aramaic and Greek. So just to be clear, we're playing with the scripture, right? An alternate perhaps non-traditional interpretation of what is happening in the story told in this text is that when the Holy Spirit came over them, perhaps the disciples weren't speaking in 50 or even 15 different languages, but rather as they spoke, as they told the story of God's deeds of power to those in the crowd, the spirit impact was revealed through expression of just two languages. For some in the crowd that was Aramaic, for some it was Greek. Okay, that would be kind of disappointing. Why would anybody be amazed or astonished 
at that. Well, let's consider for a moment the possibility that perhaps it wasn't the number of languages that might have amazed. After all, two is not a very impressive number. But rather, it was the choice of those two languages for the expression of religious fervor, expression of God's good news that amazed. Even if many of these Jews spoke Aramaic or Greek, some have speculated that the language that they didn't really know, the Jews of the diaspora in particular, was Hebrew. And Hebrew was the liturgical language, the language that one would expect to hear in Jerusalem, the language of religion, the language of religious festivals, the insider language, the one language that was not their native tongue. So let's imagine the diaspora Jews come to this religious pilgrimage festival expecting to hear only the liturgical language of Hebrew, a language that wasn't their native tongue, but instead, what do they hear? They hear this testimony about God, not in a language that is expected, but hard for them to understand, but they hear it in a language that is unexpected and easy to understand, like their common language, Aramaic, Greek. Coming with me? So, if we continue down this imaginative, <clears throat> imaginative interpretive path, we might then suggest this. That when some of the people who were there at the time grumble about the disciples, and I'm guessing these are the locals, the Jerusalem insiders, saying, they are filled with new wine, they might be saying quite literally, these people, Jesus' disciples, must be drunk. Or why else would they think that religious truth can be communicated in common language? Meanwhile, the diaspora Jews, the ones from all over the world, they're having the exact opposite reaction. Religious truth communicated in common language in our native tongue, in words we can understand, in words that make us feel included, worthy, equally part of the family of God. Now that's amazing. Okay, I'm going to sum it up. In such an interpretation, the number of languages matters less than the accessibility of the language, the accessibility of the message. People from all over the known world, all those regions that are mentioned are amazed and astonished, yes, but perhaps not by the number and variety of languages. Maybe instead it is this, maybe they are amazed and astonished that the disciples are reaching out directly to them, speaking directly to them, without barriers, without test, without reservation, using language they can understand. This message that Peter then shares is new in terms of its content. The story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. This is new, but it's also new in terms of the way it is delivered. Meeting people right 
where they are. Speaking in their native tongue, being accessible not only to the insider, but to the outsider. Perhaps we could say that what happens on Pentecost is the beginning of a new scope and a new scale of messaging. That good news is no longer only delivered to those who are able to speak the language of tradition and religious ritual and liturgy, but it is delivered to those who are outside the walls, from beyond the borders, those who speak a different language and need to hear the good news in their own native tongue. Okay, that interpretation or imagining, if you prefer to call it that, may stray from what you have been used to when you think about Pentecost. If you have most often thought of high winds and many languages being the best and most compelling evidence of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But consider this. For the person on the outside, for the person on the outside, of traditional Jerusalem-based religious understandings and religious culture and religious language. On the outside of the walls of the church, for example, what is more compelling? What is more compelling? Careful doctrine, orthodox practice, traditional liturgy, or a voice that speaks your language? that reaches across the divide of culture and experience to meet you right where you are. That is to say, when you are not so good at Hebrew, what does it mean when someone is willing to tell you the story in Aramaic or Greek, so to speak? Do you get it? We churchly types have our formal and familiar language, our code, so to speak. We have our special words and our familiar songs. We have our way of speaking and understanding. It serves us well, but does it serve the world? Let me try to give a very specific kind of example. I'm going to poke you. A good brethren example. It doesn't matter if I know right off the top of my head that Move in Our Midst is number 418 in the blue hymnal. If I can't figure out how to share and speak clearly the message of that song. And it doesn't matter if I know the melody of that beloved hymn and the bass part and the tenor part, which I do, and I switch back and forth as the verses go on when I sing the hymn. If I can't figure out how to teach and share, translate, if you will, the essence of that song I love. Or let's take it one step further If a hymn I love has no meaning or appeal to the person who needs the good news of Jesus Christ and his way of peace and justice, love and reconciliation, then am I willing to learn a new song so that I can sing with someone else in their native language? 
And don't worry, we're still going to sing Move in Our Midst this morning. But my point is this. You may think our ability to sing and harmonize is amazing. But does it impress? Does it reach the person who doesn't know our music or who doesn't even sing? So here's our Pentecost question, our Pentecost challenge. Are you going to learn a new language so that you can meet people where they are with the good news of God's redemptive and reconciling love? Sure, we could literally, uh, we could be talking literally about learning a new language, like learning Spanish, for example. That would be great more bilingual people in our community would be great. Amazing, even. But I'm also asking a more expansive question. Are you going to learn a new language so you can talk to the crowd who has come from out of town in every way, gathering here at Jerusalem or wherever that is? So, What new languages do we need to learn? What might be some examples? How about this? Learning to speak the language of sexual identity or learning to speak the language of preferred pronouns or learning to speak the language of reparation We're learning to speak the language of any justice-deserving yet justice-denied people. Or how about learning to speak the language of people who are non-religious or anti-religious? Or learning to speak the language of political adversaries? Or learning to speak the language of the person we assume is our mirror opposite? Learning to speak the language of people who might yet become our friends but only if we find common ground. The Holy Spirit question for today is this, are you going to commit to learning and speaking the native language of those with whom you don't already have affinity, familiarity, relationship, so that we know not just the language of our own faith-familiar community, but we're learning to speak the language of faith-connecting witness. Because you know what really amazes and astonishes people when you speak to them in their native language. Not in your language, but theirs. There you go. The Holy Spirit will help you. Maybe that's partly where the wind comes in, blowing us outside the walls of the familiar into the spaces of new encounter, new new relationship. But along with the wind, there will be words. The Holy Spirit can help you speak a new language so that you can be an instrument of truth and hope. And wouldn't that be amazing?
Amen.